morning. It is an honor to have you here this morning. I'm really pleased that y'all came. I'm excited about what we've got this morning. The handout, if you got it, is for two weeks. It's for this week and next week. We will not make through all of the material today. So I'm delighted that you're here. I'll tell you where we're going. This week and next week, we'll do that material. And then we're going to have a couple of classes on first and second century heresies within the church. And the, the unique part about that is those of you who are memorizing First John will see that First John was written to address an early church heresy. And it will make a lot more sense out of what you're memorizing. So that's two weeks from today, God willing. Glad that you are here this morning. We're doing church history. And this morning what we're doing is what I'm calling an early church service. Now, here's the reason why. Um, I got an email from a friend recently. And the email uh, uh, had a link to it. The link uh, I had not clicked on yet, but I read my friend's email, and here's what my friend told me. He said I was, uh, he'd recently gone to a church service where, quote, I was emotionally and physically repulsed by the sense of manipulation. It was a show with decent content. They mainly just watched the band worship. Preaching was okay, but not great. Little real worship or participation. Now, this friend of mine is a rather finicky fellow when it comes to worship. And I've had many discussions with him over the last decade about this subject. So I was not surprised to see, read that he had had that response to a recent service he had attended. Uh, my friend uh, uh, is most at home in very high church, very formalized uh, uh, worship periods. So I clicked on the link, and I watched the three-minute YouTube clip, and I found it interesting. Parts of it I thought were actually quite appealing and good, even though I think it was making fun of those parts. Parts of it I thought, Yeah, okay, this is over the line. We should not be doing this this way in church. I want to show you the clip, and I was hesitant to show it to you. In fact, I did not put the link in the written lesson. I was hesitant to show you the clip because I think there are some things in the clip that are actually very valid. And I don't want you to walk away from here thinking, ha, he thinks we should only worship the way they worshiped in the first century. Well, I don't feel that way if I felt that way, I would not be here. Because the first century church did things differently than we do things here. So I don't feel that way. But I do find it interesting to set this service up that you'll see the clip of and then ask that question, how did we get there from where we are today? And so while some of this is stuff that should make us say, okay, this church is not about manipulation. Never has been, never should be. And to the extent this shows manipulation, I find that distasteful, to put it mildly, maybe disgusting. So church is not about, I'm not up here to manipulate you. I know Pastor David and Pastor Brent are not about manipulating you. 
they at this church and I in this church are here trying to truly engage us as people in worshiping Almighty God. And that's a marvelous thing. So this is not anything other than, yeah, I love this church. So with that as a warning, that is the website I've put on the PowerPoint. And I'm going to ask Linda Hudgens, please, to click on it, make it full screen, and let's watch it together. Three minutes. You can't stop it. It's coming to a town near you. It used to be called contemporary. Some call it relevant. We're so cool, we call it contemporant. Young, hip guy welcoming all with gravity and cool glasses. I welcome everybody with arms wide open, revealing my tattoo so you know I have a past. Quirky transition to band. Invite everyone to stand. Let's do it. This is the song that everyone knows. It's the song that everyone knows. My new song that nobody knows nobody knows this song I want you to learn this song and buy my record in the bookstore after the service I just want to invite the ushers up as we prepare for our offering hmm Feel free to give if you feel led. It's between you and God, but we're tracking it. One man has all the answers. I have all the answers. Showing a picture of a puppy and or a baby from an impoverished third world nation speaking softly to draw you in and then emphatically driving home my point on pause whispering repetition still pausing pained expression long prayer so that the worship leader can get back on stage this is the closing song With strings that'll make you cry Coming soon to your town A new kind of church You will be lifted high And challenged to grow We call that Grotivation You call this Sunday morning it's an interesting video to watch. I mean, part of it I find quite humorous. Part of it I find um, disturbing. And part of it I find out of line. You know, I think it's appropriate to learn new songs. I'm thankful we learn new songs. 
When we get to another place in this class, it's my intention to play you the oldest song we know the melody of. It's an old Greek song that dates from the time of the first century. And we actually can redo the melody fairly quickly. And when we do that, you'll be glad we have new songs as well. There's always been a time where the church transitions its singing. You can go back and, and, and there's a time where Martin Luther uh, was, was uh, set, is setting apart a number of people from the, the traditional Catholic faith, the Roman faith. And in the process of that, he started new music. And he caused as much uproar over the new music as he did uh, over the, the, the other issues that, that he brought to the forefront. Um, he was well known for taking local bar songs, as in the tavern. And he would take the melodies and put religious lyrics to them. And the church just found, uh, certain elements of the church found that absolutely appalling and disgusting. We call those songs now the old hymns. An example of Martin Luther's bar song that he put Christian lyrics to, if we put it into English instead of German, is, A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never... I mean, can't you see all those Germans with their beer steins? So there's room for new songs. There's room for good preachers. The tattoo thing, by the way, that's hilarious. Because it's Hebrew, so it looks really cool. But in Hebrew, all it means is, and he did. Or and he went, and he was. I mean, it's, it's like it means nothing. So he has a meaningless Hebrew tattoo on his like arm, but it looks real cool. And uh, um, uh, uh, so, you know, how do we get where we are? How have things come? Now, many of you know I am a Doctor Who fan. Many of you do not know who Doctor Who is, and that's okay. That means there's this whole era of TV that is awaiting you that's going to make your life. It is so stinking cool. That is Doctor Who's time machine. It looks like a 1950s police box in England. It's called the TARDIS. That stands for Time and Relative Dimension, uh, something of space, in space. And so the TARDIS is a time machine, and they get in the TARDIS, and they can go into the past, into the future, anywhere in the, the universe that they want to go. So we're going to get in the TARDIS this morning because we want to leave Champion Forest Baptist Church. And we want to go back to the first century of the Roman Empire. And I want it to be Sunday morning for you in the first century of the Roman Empire, and you got to go to church. Because you've arrived on the TARDIS, but you know Sunday morning's church time. And your mom and your dad are going to be upset with you if you don't go to church. Right? Okay. You can't Google. Can't get out the phone book. Where on earth are you going to go? You going to walk down the streets and look for the billboard? You going to look for the sign, uh, 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 you know, Antiochian First Baptist Church of Methodism Episcopal Catholics meets here. Because we hadn't had all these splits yet, right? Are you going to... No, you're not going to see those signs. 
we've already covered that there was a lot of persecution of Christians. It's not a big advertisement. Oh, there might be some graffiti somewhere. You might see a fish or something, but probably not in the first century. That might even be a little early for that. So somehow you're going to plug in. How are you going to do it? Well, the writings that we've got on this, the historical writings, are in a number of different places. And we'll look at them. I want to tell you one of the best historical sources for how the early church met is called the New Testament. Now, if you walk into this and you're not a Christian, you're not a Bible believer, God bless you, that's okay. Uh, uh, Stick with us for a while. You don't have to be a believer in the Bible as God's word to read it and understand the history that it talks about. And as it talks about the history of the church, those of us who do believe that it's God's word and that it's accurate and and that you can look to it and, and, and trust it, that's great. But historians who want to read about these issues, who may or may not believe in the word, still go to it as a historical writing. So we've got the Bible. We've got other historical writings as well. One of the first things that we'll see as we look through this is that the early church met in houses. If you look at your Bible text, you look, for example, in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verse 3 says, go to the Elmo. All right, hold on, hold on, hold on. We're going to make this better. Better, 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 better. All right. Acts chapter 8, verse 3. Oops. Okay. Well, I may have lied about better. There's better. This is when Paul is going by his Jewish name, Saul, in the writings of Luke. Saul approved of the execution. That was Stephen, the first Christian martyr. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles stayed within Jerusalem at this point in time. They don't leave for uh, a a while yet. Devout men buried Stephen, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and condemned them to prison, committed them to prison. These are house churches. So he's going to house after house after house. They didn't have the pleasure of having a a room like this where we can see 750 or 800 people around these tables. How many of you have a house big enough to seat 800 around tables? We got a big house, but ours isn't big enough. See, so so the church is meeting in houses, house to house. It's not just Acts 8. If you look at the church in Rome, go to, or it's not just in Jerusalem. Romans 16, Paul's writing to the church in Rome. In Romans 16, verse 5, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give their thanks. Greet also the church in their house. 
Greet my beloved um, Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary. The way this is written, there's a good chance that all of these are different houses. Greet the church in Aquila and Priscilla's house. Greet the church at Apennaeus's, or the one he goes to. Greet Mary, another church, house church. Andronicus and Junia, another house church. Greet Ampliatus, another house church. Urbanus, another house church. All of these are house churches. If you look at the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla together with the church in their house. Now, at this point in time, Aquila and Priscilla are in Ephesus with Paul. So Aquila and Priscilla, when they lived in Rome, had a church at their house. When they lived in Ephesus, they had a church at their house. They send you greetings. If you look at Philemon and the church in Colossae, the whole letter to Philemon is a letter to Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Colossians 4.15, same thing, church in your house. Give my greetings, uh-oh, let's get it over here. Give my greetings somewhere to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So the early church is meeting in houses. We also know that the early church met in synagogues. Paul goes to the synagogue regularly. A synagogue required ten men. To have a synagogue, you had to have ten men at least. In fact, they had to be in attendance for it to be a proper service. There are a number of scholars who think that the early Christian church set up its own synagogue. And that the early Christian church in Jerusalem, for example, those were synagogues. There were over 300 synagogues in the first century in Jerusalem. And it only took 10 men to set it up. So you've got more than 10 men. You can set up a synagogue. Christianity for the first decade plus is viewed as a sect or a group of Jews. That's what they are. When when the lawyer comes to try Paul in in front of the king in Acts in uh, Caesarea, His whole complaint is, look, he's a ringleader. He belongs to the sect of the Nazarenes. That word for sect that he uses is the same word you use for the sect of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes. It's just another group within Judaism for a while. So maybe they set up their own synagogues. They certainly seem to have worshipped at other people's synagogues. Paul seems to have as well. And then they worshipped at the temple. They went to the temple as a house of prayer and they prayed at the temple. So when we try to figure out what went on in an early worship service, one of the things we're trying to do is we're trying to understand what went on in the early synagogues. Because the early church inherits a lot of that. 3,000 Jews are are converted on the first day of the, the church on Pentecost. Those Jews worship, by and large, in synagogues in the temple. 
But now they're Christians. Now they believe that Jesus was the Son of God. So when they go to their synagogue worship, things begin to take on a change. And we're not able, and scholars get frustrated at times over an inability to say it was June the 13th, you know, the year 39, when all of a sudden this change was made throughout the Roman Empire and the church. That's not the way things happen. Things happen gradually. They happen differently. They happen different in one place than they do from another and a different time schedule. As people get exposed to different things and different songs, we sing a lot of Hillsong songs in this church. Did you know that? You know where Hillsong is from? Australia. Well, we don't start those songs the same Sunday they start them. We live in a techno age where we catch up pretty quick. But, but back then, you know, so, so we're not looking at a magic moment at a corner turn. We're looking at a gradual transition. You don't turn a battleship on a dime. You know, it, it's a process. But we can go to the synagogues, and I think it's important that we understand what a synagogue service would have been like before we move forward into ours. In a synagogue service, as you came in, there would be synagogues were, were more structured buildings. They could meet in houses as well. They could meet in uh, uh, certain larger rooms. There would generally be seating set out on benches. And you almost have not an assigned seating, but an understood seating. The understood seating is older people in the front. (laughs) Miss Carolyn, yes! She's cheering that. Younger people in the back. If you were rich, you probably had a reserve seat. They liked their seats. Does that strike you as odd? No, it doesn't because bunches of you came in here. Look, I was here at 9.10 delivering the grape juice. And I caught several of you saying, confessing to me, okay, I admit it, I'm saving seats. At 9.10, we like our seats. They liked theirs. The um, uh, If we go into the synagogue, by the way, the men and the women are probably separated. As you go into the synagogue, there's going to be a chest up near the front. And you open that chest and there are scrolls. Each scroll is wrapped in, a, in, a, in its own covering. And those scrolls are the scriptures. You've got the Torah scrolls, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You've got the prophet scrolls. You've got other scrolls that are just considered other writings. It's the third category. The idea that Scripture is in a book form is foreign to the first century church. You want to know why the books are in the order they're in? Don't ask what the Jews were doing or what the first century Christians were doing because they were in scrolls in a cabinet. We'll talk about it later in, in this series where we'll talk about why the books were ordered the way they were ordered. But that's a church invention. That's not uh, uh, what was in the synagogue. So you go in there and then there's a bima. The bima is like a pulpit. It may be elevated a little bit, but it's where the reading would take place. 
It's where the instruction would take place. The synagogue, by and large, was a house of instruction in the law. There's a, an, an archisunagos is the, the word that's used by Mark and by Luke. It means uh, the head of the synagogue of sorts, but think of a man as a conductor. He's the one who's making sure everything's where it needs to be and, and the people have been selected to do the reading. And every synagogue service, there are going to be two sets of readings. You're going to have a reading from the law, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, also called the Torah. You're going to have a reading from that. And then you're going to have a reading from the Haftorah. Haftorah is, uh, the, the Haftorah is the, the, the prophetic writings. So you can read in the New Testament, for example, that Jesus goes to synagogue and he reads the passage from Isaiah about the good news being preached to the poor. He's reading the Haftarot reading for that day in the synagogue. And then he's allowed to comment on it and he preaches and the essence of his sermon is, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. So in a synagogue service, you're going to have the Torah read, you're going to have the half Torah read, and then you've got comments or lessons or instructions that are given. There's an alms box that you can drop your money in on the way in or the way out. Jesus commented on how many of the hypocritical Jews would basically sound trumpets as they dropped their money in the box. You know, it's not the kind of thing where they're going to do it halfway or, or casually or in hiding. It's kind of like, oh, the money box, I forgot. Let's see. Ugh. Hope they can use $100 bills this week. Yeah, that ought to be enough. Uh, excuse me. Ugh. As opposed to, for example, the widow who just drops in her little half penny her might, and Jesus says she gave more than anybody else, though without the trumpet and the fanfare. So they'd have the alms box there as well. So this is what happens. Now, there were some things that happened in the early church that are a little bit different than what was going on in the synagogues. We'll talk about it more next week. The singing was different. But these early churches, they're meeting in these houses. Now, the house I've put here has got an outside staircase to an upper room. And the reason I did that is the early church in Jerusalem met in an upper room. And if scholars have been historically correct in reproducing it, it was a room that's in the upstairs that was about 30 feet by 50 feet. That's 150 square feet. Now, you look at how much space you like around you if you're standing up. I measured mine. I'm about a 10-square-footer. That means 15 people fit in there comfortably. But they had more. They're squeezing them in. And you can actually do it with three square feet apiece. That's 50 people. I do not recommend it unless the Lord's truly moving in your midst. Because you are going to be rubbing elbows. But that's, that's what they're looking like. And this upper room is one that that becomes ultimately in about 300 A.D. an actual church building is built on the site, according to church history. 
So they would meet in these houses. Now, that's a typical Palestinian house, but I've thrown up some other pictures for you. If you went to Ephesus, where there was a strong church, Ephesus' Ephesian homes were built a little differently. And they would have a peristyle. This is a, a terrace house picture that I've put up here. And the peristyle is when you walk in the main floor. It's, it's the courtyard, and you've got the room surrounding it. Um, uh, let me, I'll give you another picture of one, if we can go to the Elmo. Um, we've got one here. This is from a nice Ephesus tour book. Because my camera doesn't take as good of pictures as the tour book. But that gives you a really good view of what the courtyard would be like. And you could put Christians in the courtyard, and then you've got these rooms surrounding it. And the rooms that surround it include, typically, what's called a triclinium. I've given you a drawing of a triclinium house at Dura Europa. You're saying triclini who? Triclinium. Let's learn some Latin for a moment. Tri. What do you think it is in Latin? Yes, tricycle. Uh, Louis Murray rides one of those. Um, It's only funny if he's in here. He's not in here. He's at the North Campus, but please tell him I said that. Clinium. Clinium. Take the U-M off it and just use the root clini. C-L-I-N-I. Any guesses? Clinic comes from it. It's where you have beds. Clinic is for medical beds. Clinium is beds or couches. The triclinium are couches on three sides of the room. Look at the triclinium here. You see the steps going up. Those are the little lines there, the steps going up. And then you've got a shaded area around three sides. Those are the three sides where you'd lay out cushions. Because when they ate, they would recline to eat. Triclinium is a dining room. You can take the cushions out and make it a living room. But these are rooms where they could meet, where they could dine. Now here's the problem. We're going to deal with the Lord's Supper in a moment. But the problem with the Lord's Supper is, let's see, where do I go from here? Ah, the worship service. Um, ah, we've mixed, I've mixed this up a little bit. Let's do it this way. The triclinium, here's the problem. These churches, they would meet. And people, some people would get, how many, let's poll here. How many of you get to church before the first song starts? Be honest. All right, put your hands down. How many of you, be honest, frequently, which means at least once a month, show up after the very first song has begun? Raise your hand. That's what I'm talking about. Look, I'm raising my hand. Okay, I'm being honest here. Okay? It that's not a new invention. Especially at a time where people didn't have watches the way we do. So, hey, let's show up for church Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon. Okay? Well, some come in early and they get the best seats. And they bring the best food. Kay Smith says, she brings her unleavened bread this morning. She says, I almost didn't bring it. I tasted it. It's vile. I say, Kay, I'm quoting you. Can I use your name? Yes. 
Meanwhile, Mark Wilkie is emailing me saying, man, mine's fantastic. Okay, it's just this. I was talking to Pastor David this morning before service, and I said, uh, I was talking to him about it. He says, so did anybody sweeten it? And I said, sure, we put honey in it. That's a first century thing to do. He says, that's so much better than our bland bread. He said, I heard a pastor one time say, the bread is bland so that we think about the fact that Jesus had no beauty and was not adorned and he was a bland Jesus. David said, he needs to come take communion at our church. I said, at least in our class he does. I'm not sure ours is kind of bland in there, but uh, no. I didn't. Um, so, so the church would gather together. Now, I'd like to tell you about the worship service, and we're going to do this in more detail next week because I need to finish this part up so that we can move to the Lord's Supper. But for, for my purposes, and I'm sure scholars would cringe if they saw me say this, I would say that the worship services were stews. They had a mixture of ingredients. They borrowed some things from the synagogue. They borrowed some things from culture. They borrowed some things from Jesus and his apostles. The synagogues were not very musical services. Although, when they sang, I mean, when they read scripture, they sang it. So I guess to that extent they were musical. But the church is very musical. The church has got not just scripture that they sing, but they're writing songs almost immediately. We'll get into those next week. Really, I hope you come next week because I want to spend a lot of time talking about the music in the early church. But the synagogue service gives us a lot of what the early church had, but they did not have the Lord's Supper at the synagogue. The early church would have what's called an agape feast often, and that was a love feast where they would come together and have a common meal. One of the principal reasons they had the common meal is because it was a way to help feed the poor. But that's one of the problems that's open to abuse when you've got everybody coming in for a common meal, especially when the drink du jour is vino, then there's room for abuse, as was happening in Corinth, where Paul's got to tell them, hey, don't supper club group come in early and just go hog wild on the vino and the food, and then when everybody else is coming, there's nothing left. Nothing for the poor, nothing for the outcast. That's not the body of Christ. The body of Christ is a united body. And so we get to the point where we start looking at things like the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is something that the early church took every Sunday. Every Sunday. The Lord's Supper, if we look, for example, in the Didache, and we studied, y'all remember studying the Didache? Okay, the Didache is like our early church manual of sorts, the training program. If you look at the Didache, Didache, you can see what it has to say on this issue. It's on Didache chapter 14. Can you sort of read that? Is that big enough? I'll make it a little bit bigger without losing it. On the Lord's own day, gather together and break bread and give thanks. Having first confessed your sins so that your sacrifice may be pure. But let no one who has a quarrel with a companion join you until they've been reconciled so that your sacrifice may not be defiled. So the sacrifice that we partake of, which is the blood and body of Jesus, 
is not to be defiled by us being at enmity with a brother or sister. If Jesus Christ died to forgive us of all of our sins, how do we not recognize that forgiveness of sins in our brothers and sisters? That's the point of the sacrifice. If we look at what it says concerning the, the, the cup, and what then, and this is what first century church would be like. Concerning the Eucharist, Eucharist comes from the Matthew 26 passage where it says that Jesus gave thanks over the bread. Eucharistio is, is the giving of thanks. It's, it's the thanksgiving. Okay? So concerning the Eucharist, or Paul calls it the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians. We often call it communion. Concerning the Eucharist, give thanks as follows. First concerning the cup. Then concerning the bread. But let no one eat or drink of your Eucharist except those who've been baptized in the name, into the name of the Lord. For the Lord has also spoken concerning this, do not give what is holy to dogs. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a little bit of a first century church Lord's Supper. So you're gathered around tables. I want you to think of your table as your room. That's your house church right now. And as you're gathered around tables, we're going to take the cup. Then we're going to take the bread. We're going to flip-flop it and do it the way the Didache says. And recognize what these elements are. The bread that we're using is unleavened bread. If you weren't here last week, we had at least 15 volunteers make it. And it's so interesting to see the different ways it came out. This is Kelly Leone's. It looks like it belongs at the bottom of a pizza and would really be good. This is the vile bread from Kay Smith. And I've eaten it, and it's not vile at all. It just needs a little uh, dip, olive oil. This one is an interesting thing from someone who does not have a rolling pin. But it actually tastes pretty good and uh, works. And so you can see all of the, you know, Mark Wilkies are perfect, but they've been divided in half. Of course, Marks are perfect. And uh, uh, you can see, and then this is a tortilla that someone got at HEB and brought in here. Because they were running late. So we've got our pastor Brent's going to come in. Here's the way we're going to do this. Um, I'd like everybody to please take, and the bread is to be broken. So whoever's got the cleanest hands at the table, take from the center of the table the bread, pass it around, and break the bread. And everybody take a piece of the bread. And once you've got it, don't start eating it yet. Take a piece of the bread, and then we'll say a blessing over it together. Hey, Brent, thank you, brother. Yes. Yes, that one works. Yeah, and uh, um, cool. All right, are you okay for about five more minutes? Okay, thank you, Brent. Okay, has everybody got a piece of unleavened first century bread? 
No, everybody doesn't. Okay, that's all right. Keep going. Best passing hers out. She's, she's evenly divided it. I told Dr. Bob about this last night. Dr. Bob said, well, why'd you have 15 people make it? Don't you read about the loaves and the fishes? I said, yeah, but we don't have, well, I'm not Jesus. He says, but Jesus is at church. Okay, Bob. All right, everybody has some. Almost. We will take it together. I'm going to read you the first century prayer out of the Didache over that, but I'm reading it to you, and this should not be a let's read it. This is a solemn, memorable moment. So we're going to pray this prayer together because this is why we are here is because Jesus Christ died to redeem us from all of the ickiness of grossness of the sin of this world and what it's done to us and what it's done to our loved ones. And that promise of eternal redemption, he pays the price. He gave his body, he gave his blood. So we're doing the bread first. And here is the prayer over the bread. We give you thanks, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. Just as this broken bread was scattered as wheat throughout a field upon the mountains and then was gathered together and became one, so may your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom, for yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Take the bread, please. Now, I would ask somebody at the table to open the grape juice and pour it, please, for the table. The odds are quite good. They would have had one cup and passed it around, or two cups, maybe three. I think God would deem us irresponsible in this germ generation awareness not to put into practice what we have learned about this world. So we've made that change. As we made it almost around, not quite yet. One of the amazing things about communion in the early church is is it's got, if you look at it from a time perspective, we're looking at three time periods. We reflect back on what Jesus did, and that's inherent in the elements. We reflect on our lives today, so don't come to the table if you haven't forgiven your brother. Go deal with your own business before you ever take care of the the communion, otherwise it's hypocrisy. But we also have an eye to the future, because Revelation 19 says Jesus will eat again with us in the marriage feast of the Lamb. We proclaim his death till he comes. 
So in communion, we're looking at the past and we thank God for the forgiveness of our sins. And we look at our, examine our lives and we say, Lord, we're still short. We fall short. We are not adequate. We need your blood. We need your body. We need you today. But we also do it as an expectant congregation, knowing the Lord Jesus will return and we will feast in his presence with him. And we have that assurance because what we're taking is the price that's already been paid to ensure the future. And so with the cup, we read the following. We give you thanks, our Father, for the holy vine of David, your servant, which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. And we partake of the blood of Jesus. The early church was a singing church. And we'll talk about that in a lot more detail next week. But I want you to sing with us this morning. The early church was an a cappella church. So we're going to sing a cappella. Now, everyone in here who's wearing black means you're in choir. And you're going to need to really sing strong. I was originally going to have us form a circle so that we could sing into the circle. But I'm not going to do that because I'm afraid that would not be, I think we trample people. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Pastor Brent's going to sing us, uh, lead us. He's not singing it for us. We will all sing together in conclusion of the Lord's Supper, an old hymn. And if you're too new to church to know this old hymn, then this is your new song you get to learn. Pastor Brent, thank you for coming in this morning. Would you lead us? Kim. Can we stand together as we sing? Let's sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And I think you're going to have some words to help you. Okay. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride were the
a seat for just a moment. We've got one more video that we're going to show, and then Brent's going to lead us in a closing prayer. That puts us one minute, two minutes behind. I'm sorry about that. It's my fault. Would you stand with me? Hold hands around your table as we close out in prayer. Each house, church, would you grab the person's hand next to you as we close out today? Our Heavenly Father, today we're just in awe of you. We heard earlier in the worship service and the song that you are awesome. Father, please help us to really know what that word means, that you should inspire awe within us. Thank you for accomplishing that to a great degree here in our service today. Father, I pray that as we have took that inward look into our lives, having taken the bread and the cup, to be able to say that we are beyond our sin because of you, because of what you've done in our life, certainly not because of what we have done. So as we leave today, Father, we are still indebted to you. We desire to minister in your name, to make a difference in this world. Father, I pray that we were awe-inspired to do just that. This we pray in Jesus' name.